When I heard the Senate was meeting to consider new Supreme Court ethical rules today, I knew exactly who I wanted to speak with. Jeremy Fogel. That is, Judge Jeremy Fogel. He's retired now, but still. I mean, I I describe myself as an ethics geek. (laughs) My first committee work when I was a state court judge, a young state court judge in California in the 1980s, my first committee assignment was to be on the state's Judicial Ethics Committee. And um, uh, I became the chair of that committee. That was just a start. A few years later, Fogel took over a committee that reviewed judges' financial disclosure forms. After retiring from the bench, he made a career educating judges about their ethical obligations. What I'm saying is, when it comes to judicial ethics, he's the guy. As you can imagine, Judge Fogel has watched with increasing horror over the last year as Supreme Court justices ensnared themselves in one ethical scandal after another, accepting free plane rides and boat trips, getting their government staff to sell their books. He can't help comparing it with his own experience as a judge. Like this one time when he was working in federal court, Judge Fogel's teenage son had gotten pretty close with a rich classmate like private plane rich. One of this kid's parents was the CEO of a big company. Anyway, his son gets invited on a ski vacation with his family. And so when when that happened, I said, okay, well, from now on, I'm not hearing any cases involving that company. I don't want the appearance that that somehow there's any uh, any connection. And it was it wasn't like uh, at that time I even had a case involving that company and certainly you just had a standing list it sounds like most federal judges do you have a recusal list and and you know you you put your your friends on there like you know if it's if social friends that you, whose cases you shouldn't hear or any other situation if you own stock in a company that just seems so different from what's going on right now <laughs> in Washington that's true and and I think you you could talk to any as I said you could talk to almost any judge in the country other than the Supreme Court justices, and they would have a story like that. Does that frustrate you? It does, which is why I care so much about this particular issue. But even though Democratic senators seem fired up to impose a brand new code of conduct on the Supremes, Judge Fogel, he is not particularly optimistic about their efforts. You know, I've been very clear about this. I think the court should adopt a code of conduct, too. I feel that very strongly. Um, I'm skeptical about the ability of the Congress to do anything about it because of the political divisions. Today on the show, Judge Fogel has got his own ideas for how to fix the Supreme Court's ethical mess. He's also got some thoughts about how the justices got themselves here. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. 
See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I want to get something out of the way before we really get into it here. You know and respect the justices of the Supreme Court. Like, how would you characterize your relationship with someone like Chief Justice John Roberts? I, I want to stress, I'm not, I'm not social friends with any of them, so it's, it's not like it's that kind of relationship. But professionally, uh, I had fairly frequent interaction with, with the justices when I was <clears throat> the head of the Federal Judicial Center, which is the uh, organization that exists to educate federal judges and senior judicial officials. And I was the director of that for seven years. And as part of that um, role, I was in pretty regular contact with the justices and uh, would go to circuit conferences where they were and would, would talk to them and sometimes even have, share a meal with one or one or more of them. So, so I had those kinds of contacts. And then for the chief, he was essentially my boss. He was the chair of the um, board of that governed the Federal Judicial Center, and, and, and he was the person who I ultimately reported to. Yeah, I mean, you followed him for a long time, and, you, and you've kept track of, like, how he thinks and talks about ethics. Like, one of, one of the things I think is interesting is that you've pointed out that while this year has been this kind of banner year where lots of people are talking about Supreme Court ethics and rules and, and what's going on here. The chief justice has been talking about this for a while. In fact, he did a year-end report in 2011 where he mentioned the possibility of more rules for the justices. I mean, you know, and, and I want to spend a minute on this. He said at the end of that year in his year-end report that, that there had been calls for the court to have more rules, but he didn't feel that the court needed them. Before talking about why the chief justice has historically said the Supreme Court is A-OK ethically, it's worth zooming out to talk about how weird ethical rules are for judges in this country. All judges, like the entire judiciary, they all rely on something called the Code of Judicial Conduct to guide their behavior. But this document, it's just a set of aspirational rules. And if you break one, it's not like breaking the law. That said, lower courts have a whole system to help judges stay on the straight and narrow. Committees that'll give advice if a judge is worried they might be doing something wrong and a disciplinary mechanism for when they veer off course. The Supreme Court has none of that. We're simply relying on the Chief Justice's word that he and his colleagues are on the up and up. The problem with the lack of transparency is you don't know what each justice is doing. And I, I have the, the definite sense that justices see the, the imperatives differently. And I think that's why you get the controversies that we're, we're having now. Um, for, for lower court judges, um, there is a process it, it's not a mandatory code of conduct. It's not the kind of thing where, you know, you have to check a box and do X. It's, it's more like if you, if you do something that is contrary to the code of conduct and you're a lower court judge and somebody complains about it, that there is a process for reviewing those complaints. There's an implied threat. Exactly. You could, you could be, um, there could be a complaint made to the chief judge of the circuit in which you sit. And it's not something you want to have happen to you. When you were a judge, did you have moments where you were like, is this worth the potential pain in the butt? I asked myself that question all the time. I coached soccer for a number of years. It was a game I really loved, and I, I coached a youth team. And some of the people on the team had parents who were lawyers. And, and they, they all went on my recusal list. You know, it's, it's just like, why do I want that trouble? Why do I want somebody raising an eyebrow and saying, hmm, you know, he was favorably favoring that lawyer because, you know, his 
his uh, son as the star midfielder on my team or something. You've written about how how judges in the lower courts, they don't like these rules necessarily. <laughs> like they are a pain, but it's functional to have people to have this implied threat. Whereas like the, the only difference with the Supreme Court is because there is no implied threat. The pain, there is no pain. And therefore, <laughs> there's no reason to actually go the extra mile, I guess. I think that's right. I think I think part of the reason why there are the kinds of, of situations we're dealing with now is because you don't have, as you describe it, the pain in the butt. There isn't there isn't the immediate consequence if you do something um, that's questionable that that lower court judges do. I mean. A friend of mine once described the Supreme Court justices as rock stars. These, these folks have an enormous amount of power. And it's concentrated. And it's concentrated. And and they have personas, you know, and it's not that they don't all have the same personas, but I mean, they they, they have their public figures in a way that that um, lower court judges are not. You've you've talked about how the Supreme Court justices have this kind of Talmudic relationship with their code of ethics. It's just like they consult it and they they divine from it what it means to them. Why isn't there an enforcement mechanism here, though? Because there is one for the lower courts. So so this gets into, into, into constitutional law. The Supreme Court actually is the only court that is actually specifically created by the Constitution. The Constitution gives the Congress the ability to create other courts. So every every federal court that exists apart from the Supreme Court is a creature of Congress. So because of that, Congress can also mandate certain things. They can't they can't tell judges how to decide cases, but they can certainly have jurisdictional restrictions. They can uh, you know they make the laws that the courts have to apply, um, and and they can require uh, some kind of ethical oversight. The the uh, Supreme Court is a creature of the Constitution, and I think their view has been, and I know this is the chief's view, I'm not telling any secrets, that for Congress to assert institutional control uh, over the Supreme Court would create a constitutional uh, conflict. This question, whether Congress controls the court, is really important, and not just because the Democrats in the Senate now want to make the court follow a code of ethics, but because of something called the Ethics in Government Act. This legislation clearly states that government entities need to disclose certain financial transactions, especially if they look a little shady. It's something Judge Fogel knows a lot about because he used to be one of the people reviewing those disclosures. But just like with the Code of Conduct, the Supreme Court has said they see the act as quote-unquote serious guidance. Emphasis on guidance. It may well be that a particular plane ride or a particular trip or a particular form of hospitality, you know, that if you look carefully at the at the rules, you know, doesn't specifically or clearly violate a, a prohibition. But I think I think the bigger problem is that the appearances are, are really not very good. If I had been invited to some very, very luxurious location by someone who was maybe somebody I was I was friends with. And then those people were were people who had uh, interest before the court, even if they weren't specifically litigants. It just doesn't look right. I mean, it's the wrong question. Well, did it affect any votes, right? 
obviously, if it did affect a vote, then you then you have a quid pro quo and you have a much deeper problem. You have a, you have a serious problem. But even if it didn't affect the votes, a reasonable person looking at it um, could look at it and say that, that that just shouldn't be happening. After the break, Judge Vogel thinks the Supreme Court can fix all this by making its own ethical rules. So will that work? So let's talk about ways to potentially fix ethical oversight at the court. And one way, and I know you think it's not the best way, is congressional intervention of some kind. The Senate Judiciary Committee has signaled it's interested in this. And back in the spring, I know you went to go testify. The Senate invited Chief Justice Roberts to testify. There was concern at the time both about the leak of the abortion decision and reports of Clarence Thomas accepting vacations and other goodies from a billionaire. And you you were there and you laid out what you thought was appropriate. But it was notable to me that the chief justice declined to be there and basically said, this is a separations of power thing. But separations of power doesn't mean that the branches don't talk. I had a good relationship with the chief justice and I still respect him. And I think he was being cautious and the caution was characteristic of, of him. He, he felt that for him to go to the Senate because they asked him to come, it, it was somehow telegraphed that he thought that the they would have authority to tell the court what to do. Um, and and he, he's, he's very historically conscious, and he was trying to think back on when, when chief justices have gone to Congress. So, I mean, he had his reasons. The, I think another thing that doesn't get enough attention is that, you know, he doesn't have the power as, as the chief justice to force the other eight justices to do anything. Well, why not? Well, because he's the first among peers. He, he, is, he controls the administrative apparatus of the court. So he's got to convince them. He has got to build some type of consensus, whether it's a nine to nothing consensus or a super majority or, you know, simple majority. But but it's not going to work, particularly since since codes of conduct kind of depend on people buying into them and complying with them, that it's not going to work if he can't build some kind of consensus. I think you and I are both realists and recognize all the reasons why congressional oversight of the Supreme Court is not going to happen immediately, if at all, (laughs) mostly because Congress is having a hard time getting some basic duties done. So this seems like an extra. But I, I do wonder if the Senate somehow did manage to get some ethical rules through for the Supreme Court, what would happen? Like, would that fly? It would depend. Uh, and and I, I know that's not a... Would it be appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court would have to decide? They could <laughs> issue a statement saying that we don't recognize the Senate's authority to do that. Uh, or they could say, you know, we, we, we thank the Senate for its advice and we will we will consult the rules that they have adopted for us. Or is the court accountable to Congress, in your opinion? It's, it's accountable to Congress in, in, in certain dimensions. I mean, the, the fiscal accountability, Congress gives them their budget how they spend their money, how they pay their employees, uh, you know, their work rules. I mean, all, all the sort of the administrative aspects of the of the court that don't uh, impact decision making. Um, I think Congress has some pretty clear authority. If Congress simply said the court should adopt the Code of Conduct for United States judges, the court might say thank you very much and we will 
make a good faith effort to comply. We don't we don't concede that that um, uh, constitutionally we are we are bound, but we are going to take this as serious guidance and so on. They'll say something like that. The real kicker is enforcement. So so as I was saying earlier, if you have um, if you're a lower court judge and you you violate the code of conduct, there is a process where uh, somebody can make a complaint, and then there is a body, and it's almost always the circuit council that the judge in the circuit that the judge serves in, that that can look at the uh, look at the complaint and say, you know, was there an ethics violation? How serious was it? And and what should the remedy be? And you've basically laid out that that's the reason why the whole thing works. It's, I mean, it's because people you mentioned you characterize as an implied threat. I mean, there is it's, it's a system. You know, you have you have a you have a code and you have you have rules. You have a committee. I think this is very important. You have a committee that you can consult for advice. So I mean, I when I was on the ethics committee in California, I would get a couple phone calls a week. You know, and judge would would call me and and say, you know. Um, I want to put a lawn sign, or my wife wants to put a lawn sign, or my husband wants to put a lawn sign for uh, somebody who's running for school board in my little town, you know. And uh, and you got to tell them no. <laughs> no, you can't do that. You know, you're not allowed to engage in political activity. And you know, there's a if, if you know if you co-own the house, I mean, you're you know whether whether you're supporting Joe or not, you know that's that's the that's the rule. You know, and they say, really, I mean, that's ridiculous. But but you know that that's the kind of uh, conversations you would have, and then people would get that kind of guidance. Now, the, the court, number one, doesn't have uh, transparent rules, and number two, it doesn't have, to my knowledge anyway, any sort of advisory mechanism. It has, it has a, uh, has a legal counsel who works for the court, um, who they can they can consult, they can they can talk to each other, but there's no um, independent source of advice uh, that's in any way akin to what 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 lower court judges have. So I think it's 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 both the lack of a transparent set of rules and the lack of um, any sort of uh, reference point where they can say, okay, we we've got this ambiguous question, and we're going to go talk to somebody about it. But I'm not going to just talk to somebody who's aligned with me philosophically or you know who I'm close to socially. You know, I'm going to go to somebody who is there for the purpose of giving me uh, independent and, and impartial advice. So you're saying that. It would be hard for Congress to oversee the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court kind of needs to build a system for itself, which actually sounds quite complicated, like not just a system of rules, but an advisory panel to like be the hotline that Supreme Court justices call when they have questions and then some kind of enforcement mechanism. I I didn't say that. Um, I think that that's probably not doable. I think the enforcement ultimately is going to have to be the justices own decisions, but their own decisions as informed by the uh, rules that they adopt and agree to follow. But without the enforcement mechanism, is it going to work? Well, let's say, let's let's imagine a, a situation where somebody does something that's really inappropriate. If they do it now, you know, you could get a lot of of noise about it, but you don't have you don't really have a framework. You don't say, well, here's these these are rules that this justice agreed to follow, and they didn't follow them. Um, they had the ability to get independent advice, either they didn't get it or they ignored it, and then they did this anyway. And and so you know, the ultimately the only power that Congress has in the Constitution 
is is the power of impeachment. But if you've, if you've checked all those boxes and somebody is still acting in a, in a rogue manner, then at least you have a record that, that would allow you to consider, well, is this serious enough that you're going to do something like that? So it wouldn't have actually, even if we had all these rules in, in place, all the things that have been discussed this term, the private jets, the vacations, all that sort of stuff, it could kind of still happen. It could, but it would. I think it would look different if you had these other structures in place. See, now, now it happens, and I'll just use the Justice Thomas example. You, you have people who don't like Justice Thomas's decisions saying, oh, my God, you know, he, he just did these horrible things. Um, and, and why is he still on the court? And then you get, you get um, people who defend Justice Thomas saying this is all a subterfuge because people don't like Justice Thomas's decisions. And so my belief, and hopefully I'm not naive in that belief, is that if you have a set of structures in place where you say, here are the rules that govern these kinds of things. And we we not only have rules that everybody has agreed to and the public can see them and the justice can see them, there's, there's, there's full transparency. And, and we also have the ability to get advice and you could have reached out to this, you know, un, uninvolved and impartial group and said, you know, can I do this or not? And if you still did it after that, then it seems to me that's a very different it's a very different hypothetical than if you have nothing. In my opinion, and you know, it's based on everything I've done in my career and my longtime involvement in ethics, I think the court needs to be more assertive in this area. You know, and it's like trying to figure out well, what what could it do that would would meet the perception that they're not taking it seriously enough. You know, and, and being defensive and saying there's no problem is not the right answer. I mean, it's just it's just simply not the right answer. Judge Fogel, I'm super grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. And thanks for engaging with me a little bit. It was fun for me. I hope it was for you, too. It was. I had a great time. And thank you so much for the invitation. Judge Jeremy Fogel heads up the Berkeley Judicial Institute. He spent 37 years as a judge. He also ran the Federal Judicial Center, where he helped oversee judicial education about ethics and disclosure rules. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Handing things off to Lizzie O'Leary and the What Next TVD crew for now. I will be back in this feed on Monday. Catch you then.